Chronicles 29. First Chronicles 29, please. Father, you are so good to us in that our sin debt is paid. You've paid it all through the Lord Jesus Christ. You've given us life. You've given us confidence. You've given us joy. You've given us security, not because of our doing, but because of your work that you've accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the earth, who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you. Help us as we worship you in the word this morning, that we would please you, that we would humble ourselves before you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, some preliminary comments here. The last time I taught on giving was July 21st, 2013, in an afternoon service. Prior to that, September 16th, 2012, when we addressed the rich young ruler in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And prior to that, June 13th, 2010, as part of our series when we studied worship. Why do I give you that history? First of all, because many churches browbeat people into giving. We are not such a church. We approach this topic as it comes up in a particular series or text that we're dealing with. However, I probably have done this church body a disservice with such sparing teaching on such an important part of our lives. I bring this particular study to you based upon the admonition of the elders and agreed by the deacons that we need to touch on this from time to time much more frequently than 2010, 2012, and 2013, and really uh, not really anything before or after that time. So this is not a beat people into submission kind of a message. This is we need as a body to know what God's word says about money. It is an important part of our lives. It is, it is part of our lives because um, every part of our lives should come before us in our consideration of worship and our study of God's word. Please be assured as we start this that I wholeheartedly agree with the, the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians when he makes this statement, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. So you might ask, well, why at this time are we looking at this subject? Well, we've been speaking of living under the rule of the king. Living under the rule of the king. And we've noticed that it has touched on every part of our lives, right? We asked the question early on in our study was, does the king or is the king allowed in your home? Do you let the king in your home? And that deals with our responsibility as husbands, Our responsibility as wives, our responsibility as children, and our responsibility as parents. We followed that question up with, do you 
work for the king when we go to work every day. Whether we're the employee or the employer, are we really serving the king in the midst of our everyday activity? Then we ask the question, do we speak for the king? Do we speak for the king? And so we we discussed prayer and our willingness to spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to those that we come in contact with. Do we speak for the king? And then last week, do we serve the king? And we saw so many individuals at the end of the book of Colossians who contributed. And without their contribution, where would the book of Colossians have been? Well, again, we recognize sovereignly the Lord would have found a way to bring us that important truth. But God, instead of finding a different way, he used people. He used people. and So we recognize the importance of the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our look at Jesus' kingship in our lives would not be complete without considering our stewardship of what God has blessed us with. So here's our our little thought for this morning. It will dominate our thinking, at least if you're worshiping with us, it will dominate your thinking this morning. If Jesus is king over your life, he is king over your possessions. If Jesus is king over your life, he is king over your possessions. So, with that being said, we're going to start off with a few principles regarding money, and then we're going to follow that up with some principles regarding sharing or giving. So first of all, some principles regarding money. The first concept that we must understand concerning money is that money, all money, comes from God. Money comes from God. The Bible tells us in Psalm 24 and verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and those, those who dwell therein. Not just what is contained in the world, but those who are contained in the world. So what we possess and who we are, we belong to the Lord. Now I want us to take a look, we're in First Chronicles 29 in such a glorious scene as the offering is coming forth for the, the temple in Jerusalem. God was stirring David's heart. David's heart was stirred to build a house for God. And in the process, he wanted to actually be involved in the construction. He wanted to get the whole thing done. And God said, no, you will not. You're not going to build it. You've been a man of blood, meaning you have fought wars. I'm going to allow your son, Solomon, who is a man of peace, who will reign over a kingdom of peace, I'll let him build the house. But in David's enthusiasm for the house of God, for the temple, he wanted to make sure that everything was in place. And that's what we see in this glorious scene in 1 Chronicles 29. Let's take a look beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Furthermore, King David said to all the assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. The work is great. Because the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. 
Now for the house of my God I have prepared with all my might gold for things to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, bronze for things of bronze, iron for things of iron, wood for things of wood, onyx stones, stones to be set, glistening stones of various colors, all kinds of precious stones and marble slabs in abundance. Moreover, because I have set my affection on the house of my God, I have given to the house of my God over and above all that I have prepared for the holy house, my own special treasure of gold and silver, 3,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver to overlay the walls of the houses the gold for things of gold, and the silver for things of silver, and for all kinds of work to be done by the hands of craftsmen? Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Then the leaders of the fathers' houses, leaders of the tribes of Israel, the captains of thousands and of hundreds, with the officers over the king's work, offered, what's it say? Willingly. They gave for the work, of the house of God, 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord and the hand of Jehael, the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord and King David also rejoiced greatly now we come to verse 10 and we have this introduction and then this this prayer in the or this this concept of prayer at least in the presence of all of the assembly therefore David blessed the Lord before all the assembly and David said blessed are you Lord God of Israel our father forever and ever Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers, Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand and is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me, in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things and now with joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. Listen, 
there are so many concepts. We could spend weeks on this passage. We're just passing through. Willingness, awe, inspiration, but ultimately we want to derive from this passage the understanding that everything we have comes from God. Everything we have comes from God. In Deuteronomy 8, you don't need to turn there, when Moses was reminding Israel of God's awesome faithfulness, God reminded through Moses this. He says, it is He, it is God who gives you power to get wealth. Listen, everything we have comes from Him, including our health, our ability, our intellect, our emotion, our will. Everything comes from Him. We are those, when we give to God, we're giving back to Him what He already owns. This is an important concept. God owns it all. Furthermore, concerning money, just follow with me please to 1 Timothy chapter 6. The love of money leads to evil. The love of money leads to evil. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Notice, it's not money that leads to evil. It's the love of money that leads to evil. And I really appreciate God's carefulness through the Apostle Paul in communicating this concept here in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Because so many have such an appetite for wealth. And the reason they have an appetite for wealth, it may be for status, but oftentimes it's for joy and comfort. Joy and comfort. That's usually the reason that people are longing after a multitude of finance. And here, God warns us about this kind of a love, this kind of a thirst for finance and wealth. He tells us it it brings about the opposite of what we think it will bring. In 1 Peter, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, the Bible says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. So he's telling us, here's what happens when you love money. When, when you're thinking, yes, uh, I, I want to have this amount of money, and I, and I want to have this amount of things, and, and, I, and I, I have this thirst to, to reach some level of status. That thirst for those things results in snares, temptations, traps, And he says, destruction and perdition. We've had a recent illustration of destruction. Our little micro-bursts or macro-bursts or micro-bursts and macro-bursts, or however those things turned out, seemed like a tornado. It was crazy what was going on. And we see tree limbs falling on houses. You've got some destruction. You can't can't live in that house that has a a tree branch crashed into it. What has to happen is the the tree's got to be removed. And the structure must be fixed. The planks need to be laid. And then, then the tar paper and then the shingles. It needs to be repaired. There's destruction. You know what perdition is? You can't repair it. It's as if a tornado comes squarely and runs right through the middle of your house. There's no repairing it. It's, it's called a rebuild. Destruction and perdition. This is very graphic. Well, it, it gets... It gets more graphic in verse 10. It says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith. 
strayed from the faith. They'd rather obtain wealth than walk with God. They'd rather obtain wealth than worship with God and His people. They've strayed from the faith. What else happens? What happens? What was the cause? It was in their greediness. And look at the result. And it says, and it pierced them. They have pierced themselves through with many what? Now, when he says pierced through, you get the envision, you get the the picture of a sword. And it it, it starts in one side, it goes out the other side. And everything in it, it's not a knife. It's just a picture of a knife. And what does it do? It enters and exits with sorrow. Now, why did people lust after money? Because they wanted joy and contentment. And what did they receive instead? Sorrow, misery, and discontent. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Why does God say that? Because He doesn't want you to be wealthy and and have things to enjoy. Is that really? Is that the God you know? That's not the point. It's not money. It's not wealth. It's not even being rich. It's the desire. It's the taste for being rich. And it's the lust or love of money. It will never satisfy. Listen, look at the wealthiest of people in the world. What are they doing? Not all of them. You can't paint every scenario with a broad stroke stroke brush, okay? There are some philanthropists and they give back. I don't know what's going on there, but there are some people that give back. But there are many that are just thirsting for more and they extract more from those that they can. I won't mention CEOs of like computer companies that try to extract more and more out of their programming or their products or anything like that. But you just think about it. It's just always this thirst for more. They're already wealthier than Everyone they know. But they want more. Why? It's this lust. Listen, you don't have to be on that large of a scale to have that kind of lust, do you? You just have to want more than you have. Is it, is it wrong, like if you're struggling financially, is it wrong to, to want a little bit more? Maybe not. You want to make, pay your bills. You want to be able to, to save some money. You want to be able to give to the Lord. You want to be able to do certain things. It's not wrong. It's not intrinsically sinful to say, yeah, I, I want to, to, to get a raise or, or I want to uh, diversify how I can make some money so that I can have a little bit more to, to do the right things with. It really is, it's all, it all comes back to, to what really is going on in between here. What is the reason that you want a little bit more? Is it just that you're not satisfied? Or is it just that there might be a need that you need to fill? And so there, there's a difference. The love of money leads to evil. We have that concept in the case of the rich young ruler. He valued his money over Jesus' offer of eternal life. Did his money keep him from heaven? No. If he gave his money, would he go to heaven? Giving your money doesn't lead you to heaven. But he allowed his money to be an obstacle to Jesus' offer of eternal life. He went away very sad. Why? His money was too important to him. He, he negated God's offer. In addition to these two principles concerning money, trusting in money leads to frustration and discontentment. Trusting in money leads to frustration and discontentment. Just 
notice these verses of Scripture. Proverbs 11.28 says this, He who trusts in his riches will fall. Is that frustrating? Uh-huh. In Proverbs 23.5, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Now listen, have you not experienced that? Oh, look at this. We have a little money extra. Oh, (laughs) nope. Something broke. Someone broke. Someone's teeth need to be fixed. Someone has to go to the hospital. Some some repair needs to be made on a vehicle, a house. You you, you lose uh, a benefit at work. Uh, The the, the cost of your health care goes up. The cost of your taxes, whatever the case may be. We know that money just comes and, and a lot of times it just it goes. Sometimes it goes quicker than it comes. A little bit disappointing. If we trust in it, we're going to be sorely disappointed. Now, you're already in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look down at verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, prideful, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Rather, trust in the living God. We're going to stop right there for right now. Don't trust in uncertain riches. Why? Because riches are what? Uncertain. Who was around in 2001? Anyone? Anyone have any money invested in 2001? How'd your, how'd your riches do? <laughs> your riches go, everything worked out well? No dips? Everyone felt the crunch of 20, uh, 2001 after 9-11 and the stock market and everything that went on around that time. And I'm sure you've had some of those similar experiences since. Some ups, some downs. It's uncertain. Oh, well, I've got, I, you know, listen, I've got all of my stuff planned. I've got it all out. I've got, I've got a pension coming. I have my IRAs. I've got my 401ks. I have my savings account. I actually have uh, $8 million stashed underneath my bed. I don't. <laughs> This is a theory. Theoretically, this person has this money. Tomorrow I'm going to build bigger barns. Oh. Oh, Jesus had something to say to him. You fool. This day. This day your soul will be required of you. And the question is, what, what then of all those riches? What will they accomplish? Well, Sol- Solomon had some things to say about that at the end of his life. Oh, I've got all this stuff. I've had everything. Everything. I- I've enjoyed it all under the sun. And I'm going to go away. I'm going to go the way of all the flesh. I'm going to die. And who knows if my money's going to go to a fool or not. Careful what you set aside so that you can give wealth to your children. What will that wealth do to them? You better make sure that they can handle it. You better make sure that you don't just stock up a lot of money for them and then give it to them and and think that that was really good. Now, it may be. They may be God-honoring, God-fearing people that will not allow the money to control them. But far too many taste that money And everything changes. Be very careful. The love of money is a root of evil. Trusting in money leads to frustration and discontentment. 
Riches are uncertain, but I can tell you someone who's not. We trust in the living God. Why does he use living God? Because he's not dead. He'll never die. He's as certain as certain can be. That's where our trust lies. Trusting in money, you you can never have that confidence. Another principle regarding money is money is a stewardship. We're only going to touch on this just for a moment. This is very common. You can look through the Proverbs and find all kinds of principles about money. Let me just kind of summarize it with three statements. You'll recognize them. They'll make sense to you. Ready? Save some. Spend some. Share some. So easy. Save some. Spend some. Share some. Interestingly, sometimes when people preach on money, they, they don't want to talk about the spending some part of it. I stopped reading in verse 17 on purpose, not because I didn't want you to read the rest of it, but I wanted to save it for this point. Look at what verse 17 says again. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly, what? All things to enjoy. Listen, a, a, a sermon on money should not tell you, listen, don't ever spend any money to enjoy it. Hey, listen, don't go out to eat anymore. Don't, don't go on vacation anymore. Don't, don't buy your wife a nice gift anymore. Don't buy your husband a nice gift or your children gifts. That is, that is outside of our understanding of what Scripture says about money. God has blessed us with finances. And some of that, those finances are to be enjoyed. You should Spend some. Now, some of that spending obviously needs to go to needs. You have a a house that needs to be maintained, whether you have a mortgage or not, or you're renting or not. You have insurance. You have have, uh, heating and electricity. You have telephones. You have all these, these kinds of bills that need to be providing for. And then, and then there are things that we can enjoy. God has blessed us so we can enjoy the things he's provided. He did not tell us to be these, these hermits. So be careful that you don't over-respond or over-react to certain principles. Now that transitions us to some principles concerning sharing or giving. Now listen, this, this, is, this is so valuable and so important. I, I don't think you guys think ill of me, so I don't think you're thinking I'm trying to drum money out of you. I, I hope you understand that my, my concern in this is your benefit, not mine. I'm, I'm well cared for. And I know if, if this church isn't able to care for me, I know who will. So I'm not concerned. I'm not afraid. I'm not doing this out of personal need. So don't misunderstand. When we talk about giving, we have to first understand that giving starts with giving ourselves. Take a look, please, with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Giving starts with giving ourselves. And when I say giving ourselves, I'm talking about giving our own selves, giving ourselves as a a sacrifice. Because when we give to God ourselves, we have given to Him everything we possess. You cannot say that you give to the King if you are holding back your resources. You can't say, oh yes, I serve the Lord, I love the Lord, I walk with the Lord, I please the Lord and not give to Him what He owns already. Ourselves 
and the resources he's blessed us with. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, such an encouraging and challenging passage of Scripture. Before we read, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians have already made a commitment. Their commitment was, we have committed to God a certain portion of our funds for some needy saints in Jerusalem. So now Paul writes to them, reminding them of the the commitment that they made. And what he does is he says, I don't want to tell you about the Macedonians. And I want to tell you about their generosity. But what we don't see at this portion, but we will see in a little while, he's going to, before he went to the Macedonians, tell the Macedonians about the generous commitment that the Corinthians had made. He's kind of like drumming, you know, pitting them up against one another. Hey, listen, the Macedonians, look at what they've done. Hey, Corinthians, look at look what's going on over there. Macedonians, look, look at the commitment that the Corinthians have made. Now, I'm not saying he's doing this in a dastardly way or a deceptive way. I'm just telling you what he did. It, it's, it's kind of fascinating, I'd say. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. That is That, that just doesn't even make sense. But do you read what it says? Joy in deep poverty abounding in liberality. It's called only the king. Only the king can do that. Because we don't give out of deep poverty. We say, I'm in poverty, I'm a receiver. But the one who is governed by the king, in their poverty, look for ways in which they might be liberal in their giving to others. That is supernatural. Don't miss that. Verse 3, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us, that means begging, begging us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. You know what that was saying? They were saying, you're being too generous. You need to keep some of this for yourself. But they begged, we want to do this. We want to give. We want to share. We want to help. Why? Verse 5. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Listen, I want to just focus in, just for a moment, on verse 5. They gave themselves to the Lord. That is the starting point. Can I say this? I'm going to say this respectfully. God doesn't need your money. He 
doesn't need your money. He's not a, a, a poor pauper of a God who's saying, oh, please, if, if you don't provide for me, who will? It's not like that. He is interested in you and your heart and your soul and your spirit. They gave themselves to the Lord. Think of it in terms of a family. There are people who provide some funds for their family members, whether it be for their spouse or their children, but they don't invest themselves in their family. They might provide, fine, maybe in, in abundance, but they, they have not invested their soul and their spirit in their family. Their heart is elsewhere, whether it be careers, a career, hobby, the family knows their financial contribution comes from duty rather than delight. Then on the other hand, there are people who are fully invested in their family. They may not be able to provide at the the same financial capability as someone else. But they're invested. They're invested. They've given of themselves everything they have to their family. And with that comes their funds, whether it be limited or whether it be a lot. Whose child would you rather be? The mom and dad that have invested their entire being in your well-being? Or the one who just provides stuff? Well, you, you may be tempted to say, well, of course I want the stuff. Abundance makes up for a lot. No, it doesn't. Money does not substitute itself for family love. You know, that's just a small little sampling. What do you think God prefers from you? Oh, well, if you give me $1,000 a week, I'll love you more. He just wants you. He just wants you. I'm going to give myself to the Lord. That's what he wants. And that's what we need. And that's what these Macedonian Christians have done back in the first century. Giving, this is a second principle concerning sharing, giving is an important aspect of worship. Now, let me say a couple of things here. Don't take this the wrong way. I love you. I do. When we're taking up the offering, it's almost like there, there's a, a sense amongst our church body that it's, it's like just a part of something that we do. These guys come around with the baskets. And we're doing whatever we want to do during that time. Talking, jibber-jabbering, looking at what we're going to eat for lunch. I don't know what's going on, but I hear a lot of noise. I don't hear any noise right now. I really appreciate that. I, 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 I honestly commend you, us as a church, that we have a reverence for the word. It's very rarely, aside from people coughing or having to get up to go to the bathroom or their phone ringing, <laughs> we don't have people talking during church. There's a reverence there. And what I really want to commend you to is a reverence for worship from start to finish, including the time of worship and giving. That's an act of worship. And when we're talking during that time, what we're saying is we don't recognize that this is worship time. Can I charge you with that? 
Can I challenge you to lovingly, lovingly disregard someone if they're talking to you during worship? Now, if they're like choking, help them. We're not talking about being foolish or legalistic in this. I'm talking about, can we try to help people to simmer down? We're worshiping here. It's important. Now, I want to note just a couple of things in this passage we just read about this concept of giving being an act of worship, an important act of worship. He says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you, listen, the grace of God. What do you mean? Well, he's going to talk about their giving. And it's an act of grace. He says in verse 4, imploring us with much urgency that we receive the gift. The word there is charis. You know what that word means in Greek? Grace. Grace. That we would receive the grace. In verses 6 and 7, so we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace this grace in you as well. So he's, he's saying, when, when Titus comes, let him complete this grace of your, your worship in your giving. It's a gracious act. In verse 7, it says, But as you abound in everything, in, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. The ESV translates in verses 6 and 7 that word, this grace, he says, this act of grace. Their giving was an act of grace. And we're not talking about, oh, wasn't that a gracious thing? It's grace-induced. It comes from God. God views our giving as in line with his distribution of grace in our lives. Can I say that again, please? Will you listen to this? God views as giving, excuse me, God views our giving as in line, in line, with his distribution of grace in our lives. We can say it just a slightly different way. As God's grace is imparted to us, it should be dispensed from us. God entrusts to us. And he tells us we should be entrusting that grace to others as well. Listen, one of the concepts that we've got to come to is that when God pours out his blessing in our lives, it's supposed to be spilling over. We don't get out the dustpan and say, hey, I've got to put this back in, the coffers. When it spills over, it's supposed to be for the benefit of others. And God brings forth that kind of blessing, that kind of grace into our lives. And he wants for that to be distributed elsewhere. That is such a vital concept. Take a look at Philippians chapter 4. Now we're going to be coming back to 2 Corinthians at some point, so just keep your mind there at least. Philippians chapter 4. In just a couple of minutes, we're actually going to like turn it into high gear. Because the, the concepts will come fast and furious in a couple of passages that we'll deal with. So don't be afraid. We are going to end at some point this morning. Well, this afternoon. Um, but as we get, go through these portions, we have to understand the, the basis of this. Before we start to, to, to elicit 
different principles that are very specific. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica you send aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Listen carefully to verse 18. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you. The things sent from you are a sweet-smelling aroma. The things sent from you are an acceptable sacrifice. The things sent from you are well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's telling us that their giving was an act of worship. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16, the Bible says this, Therefore by Him let us continually offer. The term there, offer, means to carry up. To carry up. Let us continually offer up to God the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Listen, when you give, you're not just like doing someone else a favor. You're actually worshiping God. And you're sharing with people. You're ministering to the needs of the saints. But that's only the secondary. The primary is that you're worshiping God. God, excuse me, giving, thirdly in our list of principles, giving should start in the local church. This is not everyone's philosophy. But the Bible, I believe, speaks clearly and articulately in this regard. Now, again, I will tell you, I am not speaking this for personal points, because I am well cared for. But notice a few passages on this issue about giving starting at the local church. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verses 17 and 18, it says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The Bible also says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 6 very clearly, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Now, you may say, well, I listen to the radio and I, and I watch on the internet and I, and I read this person's books. Who do you think Paul and the author of Hebrews is talking about when he makes these st- statements? He's talking about your church. This is where your giving starts. 
Your sacrificial giving starts with the church that God has called you to. If this isn't your church, I'm not asking you to give here. I would tell you to give to the church that that you belong to, the church that you're a part of. But if this is your church, this is where your, your giving should start. That's only part of the rationale. I want to share with you a statement by uh, Donald Whitney. He wrote in the book, Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church. Listen, this this is really cool. It's going to be on the screen. I really like how he has phrased this. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said to his disciples, I will build my church. The church belongs to him. For when he calls it my church, he acknowledges his ownership. And not only does the church as a whole belong to Christ, but every local expression of it belongs to him as well. So when you give to the church that you attend, you are giving to what Jesus owns, and you are building what he builds. To think of it another way, you are giving to Jesus to help him build his church. Now again, I'll state to you that he doesn't need your help. It's not like he's not going to get it done if you don't do it. Oh, Jesus is just waiting. Oh, will you help him build his church? I'm not talking about him being a needy God. He's not. But he's been willing to allow us to be part of it. That's the cool part. Here's Jesus doing his work. And we have the opportunity to be a part of what he's doing. We can build the church with him. Take a look, please, at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want you to notice as we start to look at another set of principles from 1 Corinthians 16 that the context of Paul giving this instruction is when the church is gathered together. This is church giving in in 1 Corinthians 16. It's church giving. Even though what's being given in 1 Corinthians 16 is going to be distributed to another church. It still comes to the church and then is distributed to the other church. You see that? that that's important to note. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, beginning in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints. He's talking about the saints in Jerusalem. Now concerning this collection that we're gathering together for the church in Jerusalem. Make sure that you do it this way. But it sets for us a, a set of principles. It's in the local church context. So giving should start in the local church. Now what we note is giving should be systematic. Giving should be systematic. Take a look at what it says in verse 1. Now concerning the, give, uh, the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the church, churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week. Okay, so what is he saying? There's, there's some regularity to this thing. It's systematic. On the first day of the week. Not only is it systematic, it's also individual. Let... Each one of you lay something aside. Let each one of you lay something aside. It's individual. So God is asking all of us to contribute. He's asking you, he's asking me to contribute. Individual. Not only that, it is proportionate. It says in verse 2, On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper that there be no collections when I come. Proportionate. So that's an interesting way to transition. You ready for this? You're going to like this. Tithing is the easy way out. You don't have to think about it. 
You don't have to think about it. If you simply just tithe, you're just like, oh, just, oh, 10%. Did you realize, ready for this? In the Old Testament, under the law, their tithing was not 10%. There were at least three separate tithes. Some people have found a fourth. I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, so it's either 23 and a third percent. Why is it a third? Well, because one of them was every third year. So it was like 10% every third year, so it's three and a third. So you add the, the two tithes that everyone agrees with, there's 20%. And then you've got this one every third year, it's 23 and a third percent. And then he asks for the free will offerings. So the giving starts after the 23 and a third percent. So listen, if, if you want to give 23 and a third percent and then start giving, you may, if you'd like. Just know that really what was going on there is it's more like a tax system to provide for the Levites and to provide for the national defense. It's kind of like you get taxed a lot here in the United States. You're paying these taxes. The church doesn't provide the national defense, right? So we're taxed already. So your giving starts after that. It's the free will offering that gives after that. What I will say is, if, if we're so willingly or unwillingly giving 23 and a third percent to some taxing system, should we really skimp when it comes to giving to God? I would say I think not. I think not. It should be proportionate. So somehow you, you figure out a way that works in your budget to, to proportionately give. But now we come to some other principles that are vital from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Head back there, please. I told you these points were going to come fast and furious now, so we're just going to move very quickly through these next points. Giving should be sacrificial. We already read this passage, but I want to read it one more time. Verses 1 through 3. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. I think we can derive from that that our our giving should be sacrificial. And I really appreciate two statements that Alistair Begg made on this comment. He said this, They were prepared to squeeze themselves so that others (laughs) might not feel the pinch. Let that one sit in for a minute. They were prepared to squeeze themselves so that others would not feel the pinch. What a way to capture that. He made another statement I thought was worthy of our consideration for understanding what it means to give sacrificially. It's not talking about foolishly. It says, they were willing to forego a legitimate want in order that they might be able to supply a legitimate need. Sacrificial. When you think about sacrificial giving, sometimes you need to forego a legitimate want so that you can sacrificially give. Because you know what, friends? I'm just going to be frank. If you just can budget your giving, and it's like, eh, it's regular, it's regular, and it's easy, and you don't feel it, I don't think you're meeting this. I don't think you're meeting sacrificial if you don't feel it. If I don't feel it, my family gives, and we have chosen to to make sure we can feel it. You have to be able to feel it. 
If you can't feel it in your budget that you're giving, then you're not giving sacrificially. So a way to, to really characterize that is sometimes we need to forego a legitimate want so that we can fulfill a legitimate need, giving sacrificially. Nextly, giving should be voluntary. Voluntary. Look at ver- verses 3 and 4. We already read verse 3. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. Look down at verse 11, please. But now you also must complete the, the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is, a, is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. In other words, someone presents a need and you're like, oh yeah, $100,000, and I'm going to give 20. I'm going to give 20 of that. And then you look and you're like, you only have seven. How are you going to do that? You don't give out of what you don't have. It's not like this foolishness where it's like, yeah, the Lord will provide the rest of the 13 that I'm committing to you. And you don't know where it's coming from. It's, it's out of what you have. And you say, okay, I've, I've made this commitment. I'm freely giving this out of what we have the ability to give. And we're going to make this voluntary gift. Giving should nextly be motivated by love. Look at verses 8 and 9. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Listen carefully. God has already pictured for us what real giving looks like. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He's already pictured for us what real giving looks like. He does it in the middle of this passage. He does it at the end of chapter 9. As he continues this discussion of of their sacrificial, their willing, their voluntary, their giving. That's for all of them. That they're they're doing in a a joyful manner. He's saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And I tell you the same. Look at Jesus. You want to see real giving? He gave himself. Did he give you part of himself? Or did he give you all of himself? So is it, is it really much for God to say, listen, I want you to give yourself to me? Or is it really, he's already demonstrated what it's like to give. He's given himself. Voluntary. Motivated by love. We could look further at that concept, but I want to move forward. Giving should be abundant. Giving should be abundant. And uh, did I include this? Yes, there it is. Proportionately. Because your abundance may be different than someone else's abundance. Let me ask you if all the people that went up to the temple treasury one day gave, gave an abundance according to Jesus. No, not all of them did. Some of them went up there and gave and they didn't feel it. But the widow with her two mites, she gave out of her poverty. She gave everything she had. She didn't have two pennies to rub together when she was done. I want you to think about that. Giving abundantly. Look at what it says here in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you, to the churches in Macedonia. See how he turned it around on them? That Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. 
Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you have previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. See what he just did? I've been boasting about you. Hey, don't make yourself look bad. Don't make me look bad. Be ready. Be ready. You said you could do this. Now, do it. In the context of what he's already said, right, back in the last chapter, out of what you have, not of what you don't have. So he's, he's telling them that they've already committed this abundant giving. Nextly, importantly, we're ratcheting, we're ratcheting up here. Giving should be from a rejoicing spirit. Verse 7. So let each of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. People like to point out that it comes from the word hilarious. It does. It's joyous is a probably a better way to say it, though, because it really kind of indicates the, the, the manner of our giving. We give in joy. Why do we give in joy? Because we know what he's done for us. We give joyously because we know what's been given on our behalf. Giving should be from a rejoicing spirit. Next, giving results in blessing from God. Oh, friends, I know I'm, I'm, I'm late. I'm late. Forgive me, but you need to hear this. This is where the prosperity gospel gets their stuff. Oh, give to us the seed money. It'll be multiplied many times over to you. This is where they get their false teaching. Just remember this. Listen carefully. Almost every, if not every, false teaching has a seed of truth in it. You hearing me? So there's something that leads them to their extravagance talk of give to God and you'll be wealthy. Well, let's see what he actually says. Let's, let's see what he actually says. It's very interesting. Verse 6. But, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap Bountifully, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for, listen, for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Now I want to tell you where this, what's, what's being said here. He says, listen, if you are really skimpy with God, you can expect to have short change. You abound toward God, He'll abound toward you. What does He mean? Well, if you give 50 bucks, God's going to multiply, you're going to get $5,000. No, not that. He says, essentially, 
You give to God, He'll refill your coffers so you can give some more. It's proportionate. You may be someone who is in a a $30,000 a year type of a situation, right? Or you may be someone who is in a a $200,000 a year type situation. This person can give far more than this person. If we give abundantly and sacrificially, guess what? You're giving for the Lord. You're rightly minded. You're, you're serving God. You're worshiping God. You're sacrificing for God. You're, you, you do it with the right place, well, for the right place, with the right heart, for the right purposes. When you give, God's going to give you what you need so you can do it again. Why? Because He wants this grace to abound in you. He wants the grace to abound in you. He doesn't want to short-circuit it to where you can give this one massive gift and that's the end of it. He wants to see you sacrificially, in faith, give to Him so He can give to you again, so you can faithfully, in faith, sacrificially give to Him so He can bless you again, so you can give to Him. Why? Because He needs your money? No, He owns it all. Do you realize the, the benefit of trusting God even if you're wealthy? If you trust in uncertain riches, you don't get that. You're trusting in the, the stock market or whatever investment you have, or whatever business you work for. Good luck with that. There's no stability. But if you give to God, you'll never outgive Him. You'll never do it. I'm not talking about a wealth, health, wealth, and prosperity kind of gospel. I'm talking about knowing who your God is and give accordingly. You see, He's given everything. You say, I lay my life out for you, God, because you've laid your life out for me. I will sacrifice for you, and I know you'll take care of me. I'm not talking about some ludicrous thinking. I'm talking about knowing God. Will He provide for you? Has He so far? Listen, I'm not doing this to drum money. I'm doing it because I love you. I I avoid this topic, and I think I've made a mistake. I've made a mistake for not talking about this, because I don't want to be that church that's drumming up money. That sounds like, oh, someone's new. Let's talk about, about giving. None of that nonsense. I don't, listen, I love you, but I don't, I don't trust in you. I trust you, but I don't trust in you. I trust in God. Listen, we are living in a, in a cruddy time. This all can end any day. You just look at what's happening in Kentucky. This can end any day. I'm not trusting in you to provide for me. I'm trusting in God. Now, I appreciate that you help. I really do. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Because I want to be here as much as I can. And if you aren't able to help with that, I have to go and provide for my family. So I've got to go somewhere else and not leave the church, but go out into the world and, and, and find a way to make money so my family can live. But my trust is in the Lord. We're living in a, in a really tenuous situation. Who are we going to rely on? Let's, let's do with our finances what God has told us to. And let's let us wait on his blessing in this regard. Uh, Just a couple other concepts, and I'm just going to read through it. Giving results in thanksgiving to God. We'll read that in verses 10, 11, and 12. Giving results in glory to God. That's in verses 13 through 15. Listen to what it says. 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 10. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes what? Thanksgiving through us because of your giving. We're 
thanking God because of your giving. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. So giving results in thanksgiving to God. Now giving results in glory to God. While through, uh, through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you, because of the exceeding grace of God, you see that grace giving again, grace of God in you, but don't forget this, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so he caps it with this concept that he's given the best gift. His grace gift is the best one. Anything we do falls and pales far to insignificance in that. But God wants to use his grace in you to be distributed through you for the benefit of people to the thanksgiving of God and to the glory of his name. Listen, we've only touched the surface. This is just a cursory look at money and a cursory look at giving. However, I think we have sufficient scripture at this point for our own meditation on this matter. The question arises, it should, it should, what will you do with this information? What will you do with this? Even better, how will you give to your king? You're giving to the king. You're giving to the king. He gave everything and he held nothing back. How about us? Let's pray. Father, help us to yield ourselves to you in in our entirety. We need you. We need this grace to abound in us. And then we trust it will abound through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.